book of Thus says the Lord, he who created you, he who fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And now from the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. The High Priestly Prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our text for this morning is the final section of 1 John. And uh, I confess I'm sad that, uh, that this is over. This, I'm an old man, and this is probably the last time I'll get to preach through one of my very favorite books. So just 1 John chapter 5, we're going to begin with verse 13 and then read through the end of the chapter. And we come in verse 13 to the verse that probably every sermon I've, I've referred to because, uh, as we've said over and over, John had this wonderful way of telling us toward the end of his writings the reason that he'd written at the second to the last chapter of his gospel. He tells us Jesus did many other things than these signs that I've recorded, but these I've written so that you will have enough to know who he is and to believe that Jesus is the Christ and have a life in his name. Now he's writing in this wonderful little letter to people who have believed in Jesus' name but realize that even in the gospel, according to John, there are pictures of people who thought they believed but turned out not really to believe and others who believed savingly. So how do I know that my faith is real? How do I know that I have eternal life, that I've been born anew, that I'm God's child? And as we've seen over and over again, and I hope you now have overlearned it and will always remember, John has given us three vital signs of the Spirit. One is a doctrinal test which centers around the biblical teaching of who Jesus is. And the second is a relational test flowing out of that knowledge of what God has done for us. It is an understanding of the implication if God has so loved me, even while I was running away from him, rebelling against him, if he's forgiven me everything and paid the penalty of my sin, how can I hold grudges? How can I fail to love others? 
And so the relational test is if, if that faith is real, it's going to start flowing out with a new quality of self-sacrificial love for those around us. And then finally, we're going to discover that in loving people well, we are actually keeping God's commandments because his commandments are simply rightly understood a picture or a series of pictures of what it looks like to love God and to love others. That's what the Ten Commandments are. The first half are a picture of if you're going to love God, this is where you need to start. If you're going to love your neighbor, this is what it looks like. So, have I read it? No. I'll read it now. Beginning with verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. About a hundred years ago in the 1920s, a young man from North Carolina went to Augusta Military Academy in Fort Deviance, Virginia, and uh, went there to do his high school training and to be finished as a Southern boy. While he was there, he began to realize that behind this, this veneer of Southern manners and moral life and proper speech, because he was excruciatingly proper in his speech and his conduct, had been raised to do the right thing, he realized that seething under the surface were the very lusts and corruptions that he saw acted out and had learned to despise in the guys around him. But increasingly, away from home, he realized that behind the facade, he was just like them in his desires. And so he wrote to his two older sisters and shared with them his distress at thinking that he might not actually be a Christian, and they told him, read, First John. And as he read and discovered these tests 
and began to pray them in and finally came in his study to verse 13 of chapter 5. These things I've written so that you, know, you may know that you have eternal life. He laid hold of that and realized that God and his grace had laid hold of him and he never again doubted his salvation and spent the rest of his life telling anyone who would listen to him that they too could know that they had eternal life through Jesus Christ and that these were the marks of those who believed. He even told those of us who were his children because that uh, young man, as you probably guessed, was my father. Uh, Augusta Military Academy is kind of on my mind because last time I did the 81 drive from here to Knoxville, I, I always would see the sign, Augusta Military Academy Museum. And I finally thought, okay, Dad, I'm gonna go pay homage. So I drove over, went to the museum. They found old records of his time there. And uh, uh, he was as bad a student as he told us he was. <laughs> but he was on the boxing team, as he told us he was. But uh, it, it's so sweet to me now to come to this verse because my father had claimed that as his life verse, so we were taught it from the time we were small children. And to this day, it is so precious to me because of the tremendous truth that it holds, but also uh, because uh, if it weren't for that, I don't know that he ever would have met my mother, and in which case, somebody else would be standing here today. <laughs> and I'm glad I'm the one standing here today. We come to the end of this letter, and it's easy just to kind of cruise through the final part of all letters and think, okay, we're at the end, we got the good stuff. But what's interesting to me, I don't know if John intended this. I'm old, but not old enough to have ever asked the apostle his intent in these last verses. But whether he intended it or not, what I find him doing here is giving us a beginning sort of practical application of what we are to do with these three marks. And I would suggest that we have in verse 13 that summary of why he wrote, and then in verses 14 through 17, we have sort of a first picture of, okay, if this new love of Christ is flowing through you, this is a great way for you to start manifesting that new relational dimension of your salvation. And then in verses 18 and 19, he gives us a picture of the ethical for the final time, the, the lived out confidence in living as a child of God. And then in the final two verses, 20 and 21, he shows us uh, how at last we are to be confident in what, and even more than that, in whom we know, the one who has given us personal knowledge of himself. And I love that he builds toward that. He's shown us all this stuff that we can be confident that we know, but he will end by saying what the Bible is aiming at, what salvation is aiming at, is not for us to all be little theologians who can list out doctrines, but men and women and children who can say from the heart, 
I know the living God. By his grace, I don't just know about him, but I know him. That's where he's going at the end of the letter. So that's where I hope we'll go over the next few minutes. First of all, uh, in verses 14 through 17, he tells us, okay, let me show you how you love. And he begins by talking about prayer, something we can do to love even the most difficult people in our lives, people that we would find it extraordinarily difficult, perhaps even unwanted by them, for us to try to do something with them or sit down and make peace with them. But he says, this is how you can have confidence when you pray. And so he gives us really this beautiful picture of prayer. He says, you know, if you're living in this confident relationship, you can know that God will hear your prayers and that God will answer your prayers. But, but, (laughs) two caveats. And we have to hear these and realize. The first is, he says, if we ask according to his will. Now, I have friends who are real prayer warriors who over the years have unsuccessfully tried to convince me that we're to reach a place in prayer where we would never say, if it be your will, because they say God has given us prayer in order that we might bend heaven and earth and even bend God to do these things. And my response is always, I'd kind of rather pray the way Jesus prayed. Uh, He, in that moment of greatest human crisis in his life here among us, when he was in the garden and asked the little band of disciples closest to him to watch and pray with him, to stay awake and hold fast in prayer, and they kept going to sleep, he wrestled in prayer, and you know how he wrestled and said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. We, I said this uh, a Sunday or two ago. We too often, in talking about this, begin talking about the horror of crucifixion. And crucifixion was a horror. The Romans designed it as state-sponsored terrorism so that When you rode into a city and you saw people crucified going into the city, you would be terrified of ever crossing Rome because you never wanted to end up like that. In fact, it's been said that we only know the name for sure of one person who was crucified, and that's Jesus. Now, we think Paul, or Peter as well, was crucified upside down, and some people would say, what about Spartacus? But that, we don't, we don't know. Why? Because to crucify someone was to obliterate them. It was to say, no one would treat a human like this, but these are subhuman people because they've rebelled. And so they'll die writhing in agony and be forgotten. No one will ever even know their names or know that they live. But that wasn't the source of Jesus' agony in the garden. There were people who faced crucifixion with courage. He was he who knew no sin. He for whom sin was the the utter polar opposite of his being was about to bear the sins of his people, the guilt, the shame, 
of rapes and murders and violence of all sort and lies and idolatries and all of the things of which people who've been saved by grace have been guilty of down through the ages, all together, real sins committed by real people in the mystery and majesty of God's grace heaped on him so that he would experience suddenly, having never known guilt or shame, the crushing weight of all of our sin and guilt and shame and taste his father's wrath for sin so that we would never have to drink that cup. We drink the cup of blessing because he drank the cup of the father's wrath. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And that's how every Christian should pray. In fact, whether we realize it or not, whenever at the end of our prayers we say, in Jesus' name, amen, that is a prayer for his will to be done. For in the ancient world, and even today, if you go out in someone's name, it means you're going out to do what they have sent you to do. If an ambassador goes out in the name of the United States and sitting at dinner, his host insults him, he can't declare war against that country. He has no power or authority of his own. He's there in the name of the ones who sent him. And so when we pray in Jesus' name, we are saying, Lord, all of this that I've asked, I'm placing under your name to be done as you will according to your will. So you might then ask, well, if God is sovereign, and if we're only to ask for his will to be done, then what's the sense of prayer? Because he's going to do it anyway. Not true. Now, there are some Reformed theologians who would disagree with me, but again, I'll always opt for the Bible. We have instances in God's dealings with Israel when he said, you did not turn back. I sent you prophet after prophet and told you if you will repent, I will, I will let you live. In fact, at one point, the prophet says to the people, this is the word of the Lord. I was looking for just one man to stand in the gap. If there'd been one who stood and prayed, I would have relented, but I found none. God calls on us to be those through whom he does his work. And one of the supreme ways that he does his work is through prayer. Prayer does change things. It doesn't change the will of God. It is a means through which God does his work. And I love that. Uh, I don't know whether it was original with Eric Alexander or whether he was quoting someone, but the great... Scottish pastor used to say, why do we talk about praying for the work? Prayer is the work. It's the great work given to us. So he's calling us to it, and he's saying, if you love, you will be seeking constantly to be God's means of salvation in the lives of those around you. And that's why, while it's fine if someone says, you know, we're all, I think, guilty of this. I know I've been. I remember seeing a cartoon years ago when I actually was a young enough pastor to take pastor's journals. Um, and it was maybe in 
leadership magazine or something. It shows a pastor standing at the back of the church and a guy's walking toward him. And he's thinking, oh rats, here comes Bob. I told him I'd pray for him. Lord, please be with Bob. Hey Bob, I've been, I've been praying for you. You know, that, that's, that's not prayer. It's not prayer to say, okay, Father, I've got my prayer list of 25 people whom I've never met, but I was asked to pray for them, so here goes. Be with Bob, be with Shirley, be with... I mean, prayer is talking with God. It's not making speeches. It's simply doing what we constantly do with each other. It's sitting down and talking with God and opening our heart and, and saying, Father... You know, I've, I've seen this, this child of mine profess you and serve you for a time, and I was so grateful, and I praised you, and now I've seen this child walk away, and my heart is broken, and I don't know what to say, and I'm afraid if I, if I move in too hard that, that I'm going to just push her further away. What do I do? Father, please, I, I put your word there while she was growing up. And now I ask you to take that word and light it on fire and draw her back to you and to me. I've told you that I, I realized as my kids became adults with their own families that the best gift that I could give them was to be their best friend, the one person they could count on to always be there to love them, to delight in them, to talk about what they wanted to talk about. And sometimes if it was too outrageous to say, would you like to know what I think about that? You know, <laughs> I'll take you to lunch. But the most important thing we can do for our adult children and a lot of our friends is to talk more to God about them than we talk to them about God, okay? Because prayer does change things. God does hear prayer. I've discovered over the years that he just never seems to do it on my timetable. I've not been able to convince him of that. But he, he uses often the withholding for us to sanctify us, to make us hold fast in faith and go on praying year after year without seeing the result. And even sometimes dying, perhaps, before we see the result. But he says, pray. The second caveat is, he says, now, there is a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying you should pray for that. Now, let me say a couple things about that. Uh, first of all, clearly, John and these people that he was writing to knew what he was talking about. This is something he taught them. This sometimes happens with Paul. Paul will say things like baptism for the dead, and we go, what? Where did that come from? He doesn't explain it because Paul, when he was writing, wasn't thinking, Annapolis, Maryland, 2022. Will they understand? I mean, Paul just was, in his mind, he was writing a letter to, to the people there in Corinth. And John is just writing to these people who knew what he was talking about. Uh, there are a couple of ideas of what, he's, what he means. The first, I don't think is it, but some people have said he's talking about things that lead to death. For example, if you've been drinking all your life and you've got cirrhosis of the liver and you're lying there dying, 
He's saying, don't waste your time going and praying for God. This is a sickness unto death or, you know, that just seems to me to be so far removed from the whole tenor of everything he's doing. I don't think that's it. I think that what he's talking about, most commentators think this, because John had been there when Jesus said this. He's talking about what Jesus, and I believe it's Mark chapter 4, called the, or what people call the unpardonable sin. And Jesus, if you'll recall, was healing people. He was touching blind eyes. He was uh, touching mute lips and speech came forth. He was working miracles that everybody was able to see. These were public. This was not a TV show where, you know, watch me lengthen this limb now, you know, or something where you go, I can do that. Uh, This was people who were broken and Jesus healed them, and they stood up and they, they sang God's praises. And so Jesus' opponents could not say, this is fake, this isn't real. But they weren't willing to say, this could only be done by the power of God. And so they had to have a power to ascribe it to, and they said, yes, he's doing these things, but he's doing it by the power of Satan. And Jesus responded in two ways. First of all, by saying, that's really a a pretty silly argument because if Satan is divided against Satan, how will his house stand? I mean, why why would, if Satan's oppressed these people, why would he now want to, to liberate them from oppression? And he said, unless you bind a strong man, you can't plunder his house. But then he said, any blasphemy committed by men is forgivable, even blasphemy against me, against the Son of Man. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. So it's a unique sin, and it's not someone at a party who's drunk saying something blasphemous about the Holy Spirit, and then the rest of their life thinking they can't be saved. That's not what he means. He means people who are persistently opposed to what God's Spirit is doing and are determined never to acknowledge that it's God at work and even to be willing to say, this is of the devil. And honestly, when the charismatic movement broke out back in the 60s, 70s, um, I, I think a lot of it was spurious, a lot of excitement, a lot of bad theology. But I'll tell you one thing that I never dared do I would hear people say, yes, I know, I I see, but that's of the devil. Don't ever say that unless it's something that the Bible says is of the devil. If you see someone beating down someone or being cruel or oppressive, you can say that's of the devil, that's not of the Lord. But don't, because you disagree with someone theologically, ascribe what they're doing to the devil because that seems to to be getting close to what he's talking about here, which is, You know, when God is at work, you'd best stay out of the way. Now, over the years, I've had people come to me who say, I'm so afraid that I've sinned unpardonably. I'm I'm just, I'm sick about it. I just don't feel, you know, I've asked God for forgiveness, but I just, I I fear that I've, and and I always say, are you worried about it? Yes. Do, Do you not want to be guilty of that? No. Uh, do you want God's work in your life? Yes. Well, then I have good news for you. You have not sinned unpardonably. 
Well, how do you know? Well, because if you had, you would not care. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts of sin. It is the Holy Spirit who gives people a desire to know the things of God. And so if you're yearning to be forgiven and to know the living God, you may be an awful sinner like the rest of us. Join the club. But you haven't sinned unpardonably because God's Spirit is at work in your life drawing you to himself. Okay, that's, that's the first. Pray. Don't lose heart. Keep on praying. Pray according to his will. How do I know? Well, you seek to walk with him and know his will. When I pray for my grandkids, I don't, I've never looked into the book of life, but those children were given to the Lord from infancy, and I just claim them. I say, Father, in eternity, write their names in your book. God's not limited by time. We can pray to the God from eternity and say, write their names in your book, and at the right perfect time, draw them to yourself. So, so pray and don't lose heart. That's the greatest thing we can do for each other very quickly, the other two. When we come, that's verses 14 through 17, verses 18 and 19. He again says, don't sin. How does he say? We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Now, if you just joined us for the first time this morning, you may be going, wow, that's depressing. You mean if, if, if you're really born again, you don't sin anymore? No. The context, he's just giving us a bullet point summary, but he's already talked over and over again. Second half of chapter one, first half of chapter two, remember, he said, this is the message that we've had from the beginning. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So if you say you have fellowship with him while you're walking in darkness, you lie, you don't do the truth. So walk in the light. If you're new, stop living over here. But then he immediately says, if we say we have no sin, we also deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then he goes on again and says, you know, if you're his, you're not gonna keep on sinning. But when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So he's always going back and forth saying, you don't have to sin anymore. You have been set free. You can live in confidence, not feeling as though, boy, you know, I wish I were free. A lot of people talk that way. A lot of people preach that, that you won't really be free until glory. Bible says you're free now. I'm free now. The fact is, we do still continue sometimes to sin, but hopefully it's no longer what it once was. It just doesn't do it for us anymore, if you know what I mean. You go, what was that about? How could I have said that again? How could I have blown up? How could I have, how could I have done that? Good grief. That's what it means to be walking in the light and go, get me out of here. Oh, Lord, forgive. And you're back walking in the light because the power of sin has been broken. Paul said that clearly in Romans chapter 6. He said, sin has no, not future tense, 
Sin, for the believer, for the one who's been raised in Christ, has no dominion over you. So when you and I sin now, we are submitting to, an, to a weak foe. Now, habits are the result of years and years of, of training and trained behaviors. And for some people, by God's grace, when, when, he, when they're born again, a lot of those things just go away. But for most people, that's not true. You may still have habitual patterns of addiction or whatever that need to be broken, but you want it broken in the confidence that God's greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. That's what he says here. He says the whole world lies under the power of the wicked one, not you. You're not under his power anymore. Stop rolling over and let him, letting him beat you. I'd, okay, true confessions. Um, you can look at me and know I'm not a fighter. But uh, I used to, when MMA started, I was really fascinated with it. Because I'd grown up watching boxing with my dad, and this seemed so much better, so much more interesting. But it, one of the things that began to fascinate me was often a new upcoming fighter who was so much better than the champ. And you could see it. You could see he's a much better fighter. First time he fought the champ would lose to him because he was in awe of him. Second time he fought him, he cleaned up and sent the champ for home. That may be a bad illustration. You all are looking at me like, who is this guy? What's he doing here? Sorry, just forget that illustration. This is the key. Every time you and I roll over and, and, and get tapped out by the enemy, we're, we're tapping out to a defeated foe. We don't have to anymore. And if you've got addictions in your life and need brothers and sisters around you to walk with you through that, there are lots of people trained to help you. There are lots of places where we need good, solid Christian counselors to stand with us and help us walk through in order to own these, these truths. But let this truth be over your life, that sin no longer has dominion over me. Satan has no power. He may hold this world still in dominion, but he hasn't got me. I've been set free. I'm a citizen of a different country. I am a child of the living God, which brings us to our final two verses, verses 20 and 21. And he says basically this, there are things that you know. There are truths, even in a culture like ours that doesn't believe in true truth. There's your truth, there's my truth, there's you. No, the Bible says there are truths to be known, but this is the best. You don't just know about God, you know Him. And he's talking here not about Jesus. He's talking about the Father. Listen. Verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. Okay, who is that? We are in Him who is true and in His Son, Jesus Christ. He's the true God and eternal life. I, I love reading the biographies of the founders of our country. We've had a whole, whole bunch of really great ones come out over the last 20 or so years and going back and getting to know them. And I remember when I was reading, I think Joseph Ells is his name, who wrote a great one on Washington. And all this incredible stuff about Washington. 
And I remember at one point sitting back and laughing and thinking, you know, he's relating stuff that happened when Washington was far from home, off at war. I'll bet I know things about him that Martha didn't know, <laughs> stuff he never even bothered to tell her. But here's the difference. I'll never know him. Martha knew him. No biography will ever know him. Martha, Martha knew to tap him and make him lie on his side so he wouldn't snore and keep her away. I mean, she knew him. And what the Bible is inviting us into is not a heap of stuff about God. It's, he's saying, I want you to know me. Jesus said, I came so that you could know the Father. I came to show you the Father. He who has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Do you know the Father? Can you say today, by God's grace, I rest at ease in his presence, knowing what a sinner I am, realizing, though I can't comprehend it, his absolute holiness. Do I know him whom to know is life? And so, of course, he ends by just saying, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And an idol is anything that we put in the place of God. It may be his most precious gifts to you. It may be your marriage. It may be a child. It may be a job, a position. It is whatever you and I look to as finally making sense of our lives and giving us a sense that life was worth living. But if I lost that person or that relationship or that thing, I don't know that I could go on. That's, and I'm not saying that we don't love deeply and dearly and aren't brokenhearted when we experience loss. That's not what I'm saying, but I'm saying he's warning us not to put anything else in the place of God Partly because you, you wreck the relationship. I think more marriages end because husbands and wives have expected each other to do for them what only God can do for them. You put the weight of giving my life meaning and significance and loving me the way I need to be loved. I, don't ever come to me for pastoral counseling and open by saying, my needs aren't being met. Because... I'm old school, and I'll probably say, grow up. <laughs> your job, if you're a Christian, is to meet the needs of your partner and to leave, leave it to the Lord to encourage them to me. So in other words, keep yourselves from idols. I'm done. <laughs> Little children, I've loved being with you for this study of John. And if you don't hear me say anything else, Hear this. Keep yourselves from idols. Would you stand?